Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zhao, and today I sit down with Mike Dudas, founder of The Block and newly announced vice president of Stablecoin Business Development at Paxos. Mike just announced his move to Paxos a week before this episode, stepping back into a chairman role at The Block. Mike has a long history in fintech, having worked at Google, Venmo, and helping start Circle, a peer-to-peer payments company. He eventually took the full plunge into crypto, founding The Block, one of the world's premier news sources and research companies on all things blockchain and crypto. He also assists crypto projects through his own G2M ventures. The Block counts some of the world's top banks, funds, law firms, governments, and technology companies as its clients. They have a free website for everyday people, which I've linked in the description, as well as many, many premium offerings. Mike is one of the most popular and public figures in the crypto space, so you can probably guess the theme of today's episode. Mike and I dive into his long journey to the block and how he first got interested in crypto, his thoughts on the Venmo and Cash App battle of the last few years, building the block with no journalism experience and successfully becoming an industry leader, DeFi 101, his very public support for Andrew Yang, and a great rapid-fire round covering his portfolio allocations, Twitter, and his thoughts on whether the Jets will win a Super Bowl before the U.S. has a CBDC. Let's get started. So, Mike, thank you for coming on today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We're very excited to have you on the show. One of the undisputed kings of crypto Twitter, the block, and much more. Yeah, very excited. Thanks so much for inviting me. And uh, if you hear some noise in the background, you know, we've got like a hurricane basically in New York City today. It's zero degree wind chill. So pardon that. Yeah, it's not looking much better in Philadelphia. Maybe we should be moving to Miami after all. Yeah, we've got like a foot of snow coming on Monday. It's ugly. <laughs> yeah, let's all play it. So to start, where have you been quarantining for the past year while working and building your company? So this room that you, know, you would see behind me, in video clips is my bedroom. It's been a wild year, right? So you know, starting in March, we spent about four months in Connecticut at my parents' home, was running a company of you know, 25 folks at that point, uh, very intense, and then came back to New York City for the summer. And it was somewhat tolerable in the sense that you, know, you could work outside and just kind of be tethered and have Wi-Fi. It's been tough though, the last uh, couple months, basically working out of this bedroom and a lot of change has occurred in that time. Personally, for me, I moved you know, from the founding CEO role to, to the chairman role at the block, and then spent a few months consulting for a couple different you know, fantastic crypto companies, and then actually starting a new full-time role with a company I'm really excited about in about a week and a half. So a lot of change. And as a, as a father, Many working parents go through this. I mean, it's just been insane, right? Your kids are around, you're teaching them at home, that kind of thing. So it's been wild. Yeah, I can imagine. Just one quick follow-up. So you said you're moving to a more chairman role at the block. What does that entail? What was the inspiration for the move? Yeah, so I've spent a decade or so in fintech in a broad variety of roles, right? So I started out at Google Wallet. The whole idea was, you know, you'd kind of take your phone, you tap at a terminal in a point of sales store and you pass your payment credentials, loyalty card, 
and maybe coupons, right? So closing the loop, the idea was on people's you know, Google advertising and seeing how that translated into real world spend. So that was my first introduction to fintech. And it was wild. I mean, just a huge project that involved retailers, banks, card networks, handset manufacturers, including you know, Android, obviously, software, SDKs, you name it, right? So very intense project. Spent three years on that then spent a few years at Braintree Venmo through the sale to PayPal, then started a company called Button in the mobile commerce space. It's a mobile affiliate platform, worked with a bunch of the biggest e-commerce companies in the world to help them with their performance marketing on mobile, and then moved full-time into crypto, which I believe, and you know, it's increasingly intertwined with financial technology, you know, technology and, and the future of banking. So for seven of those years, Button in the Block, I've been running full-time as a founder and CRO at the block, CRO at Button, CEO at the block, with a family, you know, started my first company right after our daughter was born, had our son, you know, right before I started the second one. It kind of just hit a point, and particularly in the pandemic, where it became a lot. Running a team of 25 people, you've been doing it for seven years with a family and wanting to be a dad. So you made the decision to step out of the CEO role had a wonderful team, uh, leadership team that could run the business. And as chairman, I now work a couple hours a week with the leadership team, basically advising them, but really they're exceptionally good. So it's just on questions that they have. And the CEO who come in his mid-20s and Wall Street guy worked at Citibank for a while, just phenomenal, understands the markets, understands the team, the folks he's selling to, and is able to work you know, the 15 hours a day required to be the CEO of an early stage growth company, which can be challenging for folks like me at you know, 41 with a family. So the chairman role is much better suited. And then obviously what I'm doing next, I'm moving to a growth stage company in a more of a, you know, an executive role that doesn't require 15 hours, but requires you know, a normal day's worth of very dedicated, focused, high leverage, high impact work. Got it. So you did mention Venmo there. I just want to step back for one second. Anyone in the fintech space, I think one of the you know fintech questions of this last decade ended up being, what happened to Venmo? The app was red hot from 2012 to 2017. Still is. Still has incredible power. But the company was seemingly slow to this huge wave of ancillary products, branding, redesign that Cash App and so many others have taken on. You did have experience there, as you mentioned, at Braintree Venmo. What do you think happened here? And are people being too harsh on Venmo? So Venmo was founder-led, I believe, from, call it, maybe 2009 through the acquisition by Braintree in 2012. Then it was part of Braintree, but you know, founder's still involved. And then a year and a half later, a couple of years later, acquired by PayPal. So, And then the founders moved on at that point fully. Companies that products like that that are emerging, wildly differentiated, certainly at the time, and pioneers, I think really benefit from dedicated founder leadership. And so there definitely was a transitional period where you had a lot of cooks in the kitchen, certainly in that PayPal, Braintree, Venmo era, where it was really hard. You were transitioning leadership. Basically, the product had been built for a few years and more of call it an unstructured way. So you know, getting up to the compliance standards of PayPal took some time. It's different than the genesis story of Cash App, which was sort of birthed within a company that had significant resources, but by a very entrepreneurial, call it quote unquote, founder-like team. 
So I think Venmo suffered from kind of that transition. At the same time, I mean, it has been wildly successful and it grew like wildfire through that transition period. So where some of, let's say, the product dislocation you know, on the front end, you might have noticed a lot was happening underneath. And then a lot of the marketing to make it scalable, sustainable, compliant. And then a lot was happening in terms of growth. So putting money into it to attract new users. I mean, it, it usage skyrocketed during that period of Braintree ownership and then PayPal ownership. I can't speak super, I, I can't speak too much for what happened, call it after 2014, right. maybe the last five years, other than to say, that they've definitely taken a conservative approach to product development. And it's honestly, it's worked for Venmo in many ways. I mean, it is powering the dollar volume that's going through it, the usage, the corporate adoption for pay with Venmo. It has a very attractive user demographic that uses it frequently. It's a really good business and it ties in very well with the overall PayPal ecosystem. And I think they're finally waking up to the power of, for example, PayPal now offers you know, cryptocurrency, buying and selling, and soon use it merchant. Venmo is going to be allowing that this year. So I think those are kind of meaningful things and changes that might even leapfrog some of the functionality of Cash App, which, for example, only allows Bitcoin purchasing. You know, I'm a huge Bitcoin proponent, but I'm also you know, a huge proponent of Ethereum. So it's been challenging, I think, for Venmo to focus because you've got so many different areas, just the core social feed. Hey, what do we do with merchants and pay with Venmo? What do we do for consumer facing features? Probably a lot of feature creep and things like that. And also wasn't the number one priority at PayPal for a long time. Whereas Cash App has been sort of a standalone business unit able to kind of run itself. But, you know, if I were to score them, I'd still call it like B minus. And I would say that Cash App has executed at like an A level. So you can only do what you can do, right? You can't stop an incredible competitor from emerging. And so Venmo is in a position of strength if they, as you said, I think if they start to continue to innovate, they have been doing so, I believe, more rapidly, more recently. Again, expanding pay with Venmo. I think the Venmo card was a really, really nice card, well thought out, very well done. Again, probably a year too late, uh, later than it should have been, but a good product. Uh, and what they're doing with crypto excites me. So I think they are in a good place moving forward. And it's clearly a huge focus for Dan Schulman now. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That was very informative. So going to one thing you mentioned, you said, you know, you're clearly a big proponent of Bitcoin, especially Ethereum now. When was the first time that you were exposed to cryptocurrency? Where did you start to understand that this ecosystem was, you know, going to be what it, it became It was today? that exact time frame. So when I was at Braintree Venmo, I was fortunate enough to be working on, hey, what are the features and functionality that we might offer to consumers and merchants that will be new, unique, and interesting? You know, I was working on mobile business development. So one of those conversations was around, and this is back when you know Bitcoin was effectively the only large cryptocurrency, 2013. Should we allow people to pay at our, you know, at merchants that we support, like Airbnb and Uber, using Bitcoin? Coinbase was on the forefront of that. So we started talking to them. They had you know, gotten some deals done directly with merchants and had a few conversations. I remember reading Chamath's piece in Bloomberg in the middle of 2013 right. that Bitcoin was you know, schmuck insurance against sort of the future that we're now sort of seeing take shape. Right. 
and he's certainly irresponsibly long uh, Bitcoin <laughs> still today. Right. So 2013 is when I became aware of it, got excited about it for different reasons than what the current primary use case is today. I uh, got excited about it as, hey, a cheaper way, a faster way, you know, assured settlement to pay. And you know that really hasn't been borne out you know, for a whole host of issues around um, how expensive transactions are, how many transactions can be supported, et cetera. But that's the beauty of creating something that's quote unquote decentralized. It, it sort of develops on its own. And because of Bitcoin's monetary policy, that's effectively you know fixed supply and a predictable inflation schedule that's very low. People have gotten comfortable around it as a store of value, and I've come around to that. And I would say through about 2018, even maybe early 2019, that was enough for me. I was what you would probably call kind of like a Bitcoin maximalist, and you know right. I was really deeply interested in. But as Ethereum, like the ICO phase of Ethereum wasn't that exciting for me. But as you, know, you started to see decentralized finance, you know, non-fungible tokens and you know, assets that are scarce and things like that develop and, and start to scale. And that's really taken flight in the last nine months. I've gotten much more excited about Ethereum, not relative to Bitcoin, but just Ethereum as a protocol of cryptocurrency and you know an ecosystem. And then you're going further into it. I've gotten interested in some of these decentralized finance products and their associated tokens, the highest level decentralized finance just being you know, recreating a lot of the financial market core use cases, borrowing, lending, options, derivatives, wealth management, et cetera, but doing so you know without trusted intermediaries uh, and doing so you know via smart contracts and you know by code effectively so it's really really interesting very early days very risky have to know what you're doing hard to access but exciting right so on defi it's certainly something that we've seen as you mentioned gain so much momentum i'm seeing more and more of it it seems every day for maybe just our everyday listener or user what are just some sample tokens that you've seen maybe the most common use cases right now for DeFi? How can people access them in the simplest way? So I'll speak about truly accessing them, okay? You know, there are index tokens you can buy and you know, people can research a DeFi index token if they'd like exposure, but without actually participating in DeFi. But, you know, the core things that you know I find interesting, you just start with the decentralized exchanges. So places where you can exchange assets in an unstoppable manner, right? Coinbase is down, Robinhood's down today. You know, Uniswap is not down. So Uniswap is right now the leading DEX or decentralized exchange. It's an exciting place where you know you can buy assets with no intermediary. Another one would be sushi swap, which is call it a clone or a knockoff of Uniswap. But taking sort of a different governance approach, Uniswap has a sort of a core team and core investors who are developing, call it a little bit behind the scenes, whereas SushiSwap does you know, most of this out in the open and is sort of community driven. But all these things are risky. Then there's borrowing and lending protocols, things like Compound and Aave. Uh, and so those are really, really interesting. Then there's you know, synthetic asset protocols like Synthetics. You know, I could go on and on in terms of things that I'm interested in, but uh, the point is, if you can imagine it, it's people are experimenting with it right now. Those are just some of the blue chips, the exchanges, those decentralized exchanges, and then those you know, decentralized borrowing and lending protocols being 
you know, sort of the first primitives. Another one, there's Nexus Mutual, which is like giving you insurance on smart contract failure and protocol failure. I mean, it's, it's, it's really wild. It's happening so fast. You know, there've been a number of obviously hacks and exploits and it's risky, but you only learn by participating. And you know, I would encourage anybody with some resources to do so, but to do so prudently and not go wild, which by the way, is hard to do because right now right. DeFi is so popular. It's mainly on Ethereum mm-hmm. and the costs to participate and to have these smart contract transactions go through paid as Ethereum gas fees are astronomically high and pricing many people out of actually participating. Yeah, the pricing is pretty significant, but the number of opportunities I'm seeing across the landscape is just incredible. And it's so hard in this current market to not want to participate, especially when the entire asset class of traditional fixed income is just brutal for most retail investors. So as you had mentioned, you know, you founded The Block, which has a traditional website that people can view, which I've put in the show notes, but also has institutional offerings for some of the world's top banks, tech companies, law firms, governments, and more. How are these institutions interacting with you and how are you disrupting more traditional providers of news and research? Yeah, so we do have what I think will be the model of the future. You know, you see a lot of discussion right now, particularly in the tech ecosystem around, and and I believe a lot of what is being said has some truth to it, but that you have sort of traditional journalism has staked out this position of skepticism around emerging technology, around financial innovation and the financial industry since 2008, 2009. So what's happening is you're getting very focused, call it industry-specific publications, and you're going to see more of them, both solo operators, but also brands like The Block, I think take a more, honestly, a more curious and optimistic and deeper view of the technology, the people, the products being built, and are trying to explain not big narratives to a mass audience, like, oh, this crazy story of how an early Bitcoin miner lost his computer and lost $200 million worth of Bitcoin that at the time didn't even have a market price. Like, that's not interesting. Like, right. it's interesting. And like, people sent it to me and were like, wow, dude, this, this is crazy. And I'm like, <laughs> I mean, that's, pro- again, the least interesting right. thing. Let me tell you about this cool decentralized exchange that you can trade on. <laughs> so we set out to cover this industry and this ecosystem and this thing that we think is going to be one of the five most probably three most powerful things that happens in the rest of our lifetimes, which is you know, money and finance, which you know, drives everything else candidly. Things like healthcare, education, climate change, you know, many of these things are going to be, call it disrupted or evolve, you know, based on how they're funded. And so money is obviously crucial to how everything in the world happens. And you know, we see a change over the coming decades of the sort of fiat money regime. It's not that old, right? It's not what has been typical for the full length of human history. So I think you know, given that we have you know, the internet, given that we have these protocols, we're going to see new forms of money that are unstoppable. We wanted to, in 2018, cover that. We originally wanted to cover it to an enthusiast audience. So our motto was crypto simplified. That audience went away pretty quickly in 2018 <laughs> as crypto prices crashed. Probably myself so, included. Yeah, it was honestly, it was for the best for us. So we were able to recruit in and focus on institutions who really cared, researchers and journalists. They work together and it makes our journalism significantly better. 
It helps our researchers be better because they know what stories are sort of interesting to people with a journalism mindset. And so they feed off one another exceptionally well. And again, you're going to see this model more and more. Andreessen Horowitz is launching a media publication that's going to have professional journalists, but also practitioners, investors, entrepreneurs contributing. That's different than what we do. We're definitely not we're not looking for deal flow from our media company. We're looking for sponsorships and subscriptions, right? So to your question, we primarily monetize the journalism and media through sponsorships, and that's advertising in the newsletter, the website, the podcasts, and other media assets that we have. It gives top of funnel awareness, though, to everything else as well. So then we have a set of customers, institutional customers, who pay us in the way that they pay CBN sites for deeper research. So access to our research analysts, access to calls, deeper reports, things that institutions use to make decisions. And so they find incredible value for it. We don't put a single market price on it anymore. We talk with these institutions and say, look, here's how much value like we've created for other businesses. If you look at our roster of subscribers and clients, their <laughs> their enterprise values have been increasing significantly. And perhaps... I'd love to actually do a study of like who's sponsored with us, who's subscribed to us versus competitors who haven't and see like the valuation differences. I think you'd see some fun things there. Yeah. Well, maybe it was, it's not just attributed to modern monetary theory and all of the printing. We'll have to see about that one. (laughs) Some lurking variables. It's not, it's not right. So like decentralized finance and what's happening on Ethereum, which I think a lot of people are focused only on the macro are missing. It's not MMT specific. It's saying there actually are more efficient and better ways to do borrowing and lending and exchange of value. So there's multiple themes happening. Digital collectibles have some properties, for example, that I think are more interesting than physical ones. If I bought a Topps baseball card today, I wouldn't know where to put it in my New York apartment. You know, I've got a bunch sitting in my parents' my bedroom, my childhood bedroom. So if you only pay attention to the macro, you'll definitely miss out on a lot of the other really interesting things happening in crypto. Yeah. So one thing I want to back up on, I mean, Mike, you have a obviously very impressive background, Stanford, Kellogg, Disney, Venmo, Google, and then growing the button, but no publication journalism reporting experience necessarily. How did you decide to build this and what lessons, what mistakes were you making at first? Yeah. So I looked at the landscape in early 2017, early 2018. I was having a hard time understanding what was going on and I wanted to be in this space. I care about it. I'm passionate about it, as you can tell. But it became clear to me that the things did seem really heated, so overheated valuation-wise. So you know there weren't really protocols that didn't make sense to become an investor. I didn't really feel like I had any advantage there. And so I looked at companies, but having been a founder, I wanted to start a company. And so basically looked at the gap in the market and said, and I you know had a Twitter account and was in Telegram and I have like you know an outgoing personality and said, look, you know I think I can help explain this technology to people and do that with a team. So yeah, that that was the original idea was just where do my skills align with what's needed in the market? And what you learn as a founder, I'd started a company before this was you can always hire if you have a good vision, a sound vision, and you're competent, you can you know, hire a team of professionals to do the things that you don't know how to do and learn. Now, obviously, didn't do it right from the beginning. You know, we went through two editor-in-chiefs in the first nine oh, wow. months. Uh, I was writing for a while. I mean, you do what you can to just get yourself off the ground. So it was a 
definite steep learning curve and definitely didn't do it all right. And then to market ourselves and stand out, I took certainly an antagonistic approach to the existing news sources. You probably overdid that over the period of a year and just kind of, there's a point where it was useful and then it got to be too much. So you live and learn, but it feels like we've netted out in a good place where we're now an industry leader. The talent is there, tremendous research and journalism talent. You know, I'm now in the background and and just kind of supporting and the actual talented people who are the primary source experts are the personalities that people see and interact with, you know, day in and day out. Yeah. And then so I want to pivot actually to one last thing. In the last two weeks, you've been heavily publicized and getting involved with Andrew Yang, who's running for mayor of New York. Can you talk about your relationship with Andrew Yang and why you believe in his platform moving forward? So yeah, no personal relationship or affiliation with him historically. In fact, I didn't support oh, wow. him for president. I did not support him. I just, he wasn't on the ballot that, <laughs> and I didn't donate. Right. And I thought his ideas were interesting. So I've never, you know, I was a public policy major at Stanford. I definitely have been interested in government. I was in student government, but I haven't like participated in a campaign in my adult life other than to donate a little money here or there. So I was compelled more by the moment. So I live in New York City, have one child in public school, another who will be next year. And we're living at a critical time for our city's future. And people are increasingly aware of the importance of local government. You're you're seeing it in this sort of San Francisco versus Miami and Austin theme that's happening. Fortunately, New York City sort of stayed out of that to some extent. But New York City definitely shot itself in the foot when we put up you know, roadblocks to Amazon having their HQ2 here. I've had just issues around Cuomo, like proposed wealth taxes and just things that I don't believe are sensible. And so I view it as a critical time to pay attention to local governance. San Francisco, again, being the biggest example of what happens if you don't. I do believe that New York City has historically in the 21st century had pretty good infrastructure, but it has decayed over the last few years pretty significantly. De Blasio is a disaster. I mean, he's just completely incompetent. So we can't allow that to happen again. And I tend to be sympathetic to the Bloomberg type candidate who has business experience, but also has really good policy and put good people around them. I believe that's Andrew Yang. And being somebody who's worked in fintech and with money, I believe in being Democrat. I wouldn't say I'm quite a progressive. I'm sort of right in the middle of the democratic spectrum. But I believe we need to get money into the hands directly of people who need it, like immediately in ASAP. So I like his, Andrew's belief in universal basic income, starting with a small segment and growing it as possible. The People's Bank, so folks have access to benefits and to you know, banking is a really interesting proposal in my mind. But ultimately, I just think the guy is going to be able to execute on what he promises. He's run companies. He's run nonprofits. He's a doer. He galvanizes people. We've seen how important it is to galvanize people. You saw AOC was on Twitch last night, you know, right. had 300, 400,000 people watching. Andrew can get that level of attention that I think is really important for you know, so I think he can execute. I like his policies, but I also think he can get New York back in a very positive light on the global stage, which is going to be necessary as we recover from COVID over the next few years. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I lived in New York for five years before school, long time, you know, grew up in the shadow of New York. I completely agree. The city needs such a reset. And 
I mean, de Blasio, I don't think you'll find a single New Yorker to support the guy at this point. Hopefully, Andrew yeah. Yang. Is able I mean, to it's a shame. Noise. It's really, it is sad. I think a lot of the things he said, he's just not a man of conviction or competence, unfortunately. He flip-flops too much, depending on the political wins, and he makes promises that he can't keep. He'll promise something publicly, for example, about an agreement with like teachers union that he actually doesn't have agreement on and he's trying to stress and pressure them. It's just not that type of politics isn't working right now and it hasn't worked. And yeah, candidly, he's not been a good leader. So I'm more optimistic with Andrew's approach and how he treats people. I mean, he's a human, he's a, he's a kind right. person. And I think that's going to be really important, kind, but substantial. Well, Mike, you've reached the final part of the episode, which is the rapid fire round We've got a set of questions for you. you got about five to 10 seconds max answer each. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right. Does the U.S. have a working CBDC by 2030? No, not at scale. Uh, is, it true, <laughs> is it true that you're 100% in crypto and DeFi at this point in your assets? At liquid assets, we'll call it 98%. What are your largest holdings, if you're willing to share? Bitcoin's by far the largest holding. Best follow you have on Twitter? Joe Wiesenthal, the stalwart. He's one of Bloomberg's opinion editors. He's incredible. I follow him, love him. All right. Why the recent Twitter reset? You cleared your feed, new picture. Oh, that was like a 10 year old picture. I was like, we got to, we got to <laughs> get times. But I delete my tweets every two to three days. And I just believe Twitter is an ephemeral discussion. It's best as an ephemeral discussion medium, particularly for somebody like me who's you know, passionate. If, People want to screenshot my takes and come at me later, as they often do. That's fine. Right. But I like it as an ephemeral messaging platform. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of articles out there on some of your some of your spats, public spats. So, how about least favorite person on Twitter? I don't need to. I would say I would say there's a handful of Bitcoin maximalists who we have jointly agreed to block each other so that we don't ever have to pay attention to each other again. I would say there's a guy named. Saifedean Amus, who write, wrote the Bitcoin standard, he's probably the worst of the bunch. Love it. All right. So you're back to 27 years old. Let's say you're graduating Wharton in the spring. What roles are you looking at? What are you investing in? What career? Yeah. So I made a mistake. I took a year where I worked at Kaplan. It was like a passion thing. I want to learn about education. I was in Chicago at the time coming out of Kellogg. It was a waste. I think dive into something that's hot and moving and you're interested in. You know, Wharton's known for fintech. You know, this is a fintech club. Like, get into it. Get into crypto. You know, skip Wall Street. It's a waste of your time. You're going to accelerate your career five to seven years if you jump directly into a company like BlockFi, a company like Paxos, you know, the absolute leaders in the space. It's just a no-brainer right now. How about dumbest crypto project you've seen recently? I mean, there's there's just too many to name. Well, let's just go with you know Bitcoin SV. Yeah, you know, <laughs> Craig Wright's joke of the chain. So, all right, you're also a New York Jets fan. I'm a diehard New York Jets fan. Probably my biggest life passion. Who's your favorite Jet of all time? So Freeman McNeil, you know, oh. great running back in the in the '80s. Got me got me excited, and interested. I had his jersey. Yeah, Altoon running close mm-hmm. second. Yeah, these guys are before my time, but I do respect them. <laughs> so who do you hate more, Manchester United, the Patriots, or Coindesk? So I don't hate Coindesk. I respect <laughs> them, and now we're more playful people. So I'm a newer Liverpool fan, seven or eight years. And so Liverpool's actually gotten the better of them for much of that term. So I really don't hate them at the moment as a relatively new fan. So obviously the Patriots, they stole Bill Belichick from us in 2000. The worst. Uh, 
Tom Brady. And yeah, you know, I've lived through 20 years of probably the best single dynasty in the history of sports and been on the losing end of it. So it's been an absolute delight to watch Bill Belichick fail this year. I don't really care what happens with Tom Brady as a Buccaneer. Completely agree, but we'll always have the uh, 2011 AFC Championship or AFC Divisional fun, game. <laughs> I still watch those YouTube highlights. That yeah. is the one. Yeah, there were some good ones, man. We've missed some chances, but oh. uh, I think hopefully, you know, I think we'll see a Jet Super Bowl before we'll see a US CBDC. <laughs> oh, I love that take. Let's hope so. All right. So, hardest part about being a journalist that nobody understands? The things that happen. So, I'm not a journalist, so I'm going to infer what I see happen yes. with others. You know, I think journalists, we're at a phase where there's a lot of pitchforks. Journalists will do really well-intentioned, high-quality, good, factual, accurate reporting that's done, locked and loaded. We've had this done at the block. Print the piece. Company denies it. We know they're lying. They attack. The mob comes. I mean, it's not you're not rewarded for doing your best, deepest, most complex investigative journalism work anymore. You're rewarded for other things. It stinks. But, you know, so it's a tough time to be a journalist, meaning the mob's out against you and Trump and others have really decreased faith in the media. Absolutely. Now, last two questions. First, where do you get your news? How do you stay informed? Yeah. So I subscribe to a bunch of newsletters, a bunch of feeds that I read in Feedly. The only subscriptions I have are the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, New York Times, and of course, The Block. And last question, if people want to learn more about The Block or get involved, how can they reach you? Yeah, so I'm at M-D-U-D-A-S on Twitter. Always the best way. Just send me a direct message. I have open DMs. You mentioned you listen to the podcast. And I'm also... You can go to theblockcrypto.com and a lot of information there. We're hiring across the board, research, journalism, some ops positions, and uh, VP engineering. Great. Well, Mike, with that, I want to thank you for coming on today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. This was a great episode, a lot of insight, very timely, and it was great to have you on. Absolutely. Really appreciate it. It was great. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more fintech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauk. Thank you.